You're listening to a Podglomerate original. It's like in our dreams, every published author is a millionaire. Every title goes to auction. Every editor is brilliant and attentive and all books hit the bestseller list. Yeah, no, that is the dream. That is the dream, that is the dream, but that is not what meshes with reality. Hi, Missing Pagers. Okay, so we're doing something a little different in this episode. You know me, I'm Beth Ann Patrick, your friendly host and publishing industry insider. But I want to introduce you to my colleague, Matt Healy. Matt, say hi to the nice people. Hi, Bethann. Matt is what we call in the industry, a highly technical term, a bubble burster. That's me. I worked in book publishing for a while. I write literary reviews for a few publications. And there were a whole bunch of industry codes and cues that I had to decipher, pick up, or just totally failed to understand over the years. Yes. And today we're going to crack the code between the dream of the book world versus the reality of this business. Yep. And I'll be here to give you a reality check or three. And our guest, Eric Smith. I'm a literary agent at PS Literary uh, and a young adult author. Uh, I'm lucky enough to work on award-winning and New York Times best-selling books. However, I haven't written one yet. Yeah, not quite as pessimistic, cynical, and, and bitter as I am, but not all rainbow sunshine, unicorns, and butterflies like you are, Bethann. <laughs> Ready to get started? Welcome to Reality Check, the dream versus... <sighs> the reality. Part one, the writer. So let's get this straight. You're a critically acclaimed author for your very first debut novel. You're a millionaire. You're incredibly handsome. Go on. Being a writer, it's the sexiest job in the world, right? The writer has devoted her life to the dream of being a writer. She was a star student, always called on to read her essays in front of the class. She even edited the college literary magazine. Now, after laboring over phrases and sweating out perfect sentences, at long last, her book is complete. Boom! The perfect book on the first try. This sounds great, doesn't it? Hi, hello, it's me, Matt, and I'm here to burst your bubble with a little reality check. The writer. Consider Beth Ann. She graduated from Smith, sans laude, and then immediately got married and didn't write a thing for several years, other than checks to her children's preschool. Then AOL called and said, Beth Ann, America is online. And she was hired as the first corporate literary blogger. It was on. This is not an unusual story. This is the story. A lot of writers have full-time day jobs. Kate Atkinson cleaned hotel rooms. Ann Patchett bartended at TGIFs. Heck, Beth Ann is hosting a podcast. There's even a tradition 
that the back of a book jacket will have a bio that rattles off all the unlikely jobs the author worked. Usually Gravedigger, though not always. I guess when you're an author trying and often failing to pay rent, inspiration can strike anywhere and everywhere, for better or for worse. Finn Chaucer is a bureaucrat. Okay, Matt, thanks for bringing down the mood, my friend. Sorry, I'm just trying to be honest. Maybe Eric has a less doom and gloom story to share about the writer's journey. I feel like it's so unglamorous, you know, to, to talk about that, you know, because like when it comes to, you know, building up to, to submit that proposal, building up to submit that manuscript, it's it's all just about that that very sometimes lonely process of, of getting it as polished as you can get it. And then sending those emails into the void where you're, you're, you're actively pitching the agents that feel like they might be a good fit for you. And it's just a lot of that solitary grinding at your desk sometimes, which is, which is why sometimes I think social media is so good. <laughs> Are most writers full-time authors, full-time writers? No, no, no. A lot of my clients, they, they have writing adjacent jobs, you know. Um, I'm lucky to work with a couple of authors who write video games for a living write about video games for a living. A lot of video game people. Um, some are copy editors, <laughs> some are copywriters, but writing is what they do uh, at the end of the day, sometimes for themselves. Toni Morrison was a single mother trying to raise two sons, Ford and Slade, working full-time as a book editor and struggling to write. It wasn't till her third book, Song of Solomon, that she dared to call herself a writer on her income tax forms. Part two, the agent. Wait, 10 million. 12 million. Fine, 11 it is. You got yourself a deal. What happens after the writer submits a perfect manuscript? Well, it falls into the capable hands of a wheeling and dealing literary agent. The agent knows everyone who is anyone in the book world, and he sends an email saying, Boy, do I want to meet you. When the agent isn't getting his teeth whitened, he's hunched over his desk, shaking his head in wonder at your brilliant prose. Unsolicited submissions go into the slush pile. Once a literal pile of paper, today it's digital and it may fall to an intern to make the first decision. Ah, your future in the hands of a fifth-year college senior. Albeit one whose mom owns the company. But some submissions don't even make it that far. The agent is likely taking an Uber X back from a three martini lunch at Malavos on 43rd and 9th, or what is known as the unofficial Random House Cafeteria. This is where he meets all of the publishers of Knopf or Riverhead, or sometimes Scribner. You know, the ones who are going to fight over your manuscript at next week's big acquisition meeting. Ah, is there anything better than a good acquisitions meeting? This is exactly why I got into writing books. Even if you send your query, which is publishing for an email, possibly with an attachment, it's really crazy, wild, complicated stuff. If it fails to meet your agent's submission guidelines, then you're shit out of luck. God forbid you attach a PDF when they explicitly asked for a Word file your submission will invariably be deleted without so much as a thank you. The three martini lunch? That's out of fashion ever since Cafe Loop closed. 
And although there are agents with sports cars and UberX expense accounts, most of them take the subway or the bus. A few might even have to walk. When the agent submits a manuscript, bidding wars inevitably ensue. Unless a desperate editor makes a seven-figure preempt to immediately take the book off the market. God, my manuscript is that good! Once the book deal closes, the agent picks up his phone and dials his Hollywood literary scout, who's also in his wife's Pilates group because, come on, when you're playing in the big leagues, it's a small world. And swiftly, the miniseries adaptation is underway. Most book deals aren't large. Many agents work solely on their 15% commissions, and some of that is going towards keeping the office lights on and keeping the office rents paid. If you've submitted your manuscript or proposal without a pre-existing connection to the agent, there's no guarantee the agent will ever even lay eyes on your writing. And if they do, once a book is submitted to editors, there's no guarantee it will sell soon or sell at all. And then, of course, there's the fact that many books are sold unfinished. If you're writing nonfiction, odds are you'll sell books on proposal. You might not begin writing in earnest until the book is sold to an editor. And until that editor has suggested a new title, a shifted focus, a wordy subtitle, and months worth of additional research that sounds really, really complicated. So, it's all relative. Or, I guess, relatives, given, you know, the nepotism of the industry. Okay, okay, all right. Thanks a lot, Matt. Way to kill my dreams of the all-powerful and connected super agent. Can we live in my reality, where my agent builds into the contract that only Meryl Streep can play me in the HBO miniseries adaptation? Sure. Only if a young Clive Owen can play me. You've got a deal, buddy. I wonder what Eric, an actual literary agent, knows about the agent life. Is... Being a literary agent glamorous is at all parties all the time. Oh, no. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, I love the TV show Younger. Like, I love it so much. This is nice. Nice? This is a power booth, Liza. From here we can see and be seen by everyone who comes in. And anytime there's like a publishing plot line, like on a TV show or a movie, I always, I always get such a kick out of it. Hey, what's up? I slipped the manuscript to a producer friend of mine at Paramount. He thinks it's perfect for Scott Rudin. Because it's always some agent who's like impeccably dressed and they're drinking like a martini at lunch with the editor and the editor's running late and they're sitting there with their martini looking kind of villainous. Now, if you want to play dirty, the stakes are going to have to go way up. What do you want? It's not like that at all. <laughs> at all. Yeah, it's just it's a lot of reading emails and, and having phone calls to get to know people and, and you know, sending long-winded chats to, to folks who I might know in the industry to get to know what they're looking for. I'm sure the, the two o'clock martini still exists somewhere, or, or maybe, but not here in Philadelphia. How long does it take between an author submitting a proposal or a manuscript and hearing back from an agent? Ooh, that varies. It definitely varies person to person and like... I guess, like, moment in history to moment in history. <laughs> right. Because, like, right now, like, I know a lot of my agent friends and, like, my editor friends are, are having a hard time getting things read as quickly as they would like. I have a, I have a slight backlog of manuscripts that I, I'm trying to work my way through right now. 
because for agents uh, and editors, the, you know, the priority usually tends to be like their current clients and the people they're working with right now. And, and then they get to go look at newer stuff. Ideally, the, the amount of time it'll take is whatever it says on the agency's website, right? It's usually <laughs> six to eight weeks. So like, you know, month and a half, two months. But these days it's just a little bit longer, but that, that is the normal is like two months. When you say you have backlog, what does a backlog mean for you? It's not too bad. It, it's maybe manuscripts dating back to like January. So it's like five months. Well, that's back. not too bad. Yeah, that's like I try to stay bad. on top of it as much as I can. Um, but it's, 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 it's a backlog because I like to, I like to sit down and read the stuff. You know, I, I'm, I'm never the kind of person who's gonna read like one page and be like, oh no, this isn't for me. God bless you, Eric Smith, for actually reading your slush pile. I salute your service. I'm, I wanna sit down and I wanna give all the books my time because I, I write too. So I, I get how hard it is. So people, you know, are looking for an agent. Why are literary agents necessary? A lot of publishers don't take unagented work, right? So like, it depends on what your goal for your book is, right? So like, if you want a smaller press, if you want an indie press, like that's totally fine. There, there are some outstanding ones out there that you don't need an agent to pitch. Like like Quirk Books, where I worked for a while. <laughs> that's you know? right. There's a lot of other presses that you know don't require agents. Um, like I love Lantern Fish Press, but if your goal is like a bigger publisher, that's also fine, but you're gonna need an agent to, to get you in the door there because uh, most editors can't consider unagented work. Their inboxes would be overflowing. I, I can't even fathom. So that's the that's one of the, the, the bigger reasons. The other little reasons that sort of flutter off of that is that agents help sell your sub rights. You know, we are the people that go and help you find an audiobook deal. We help you get your film and TV rights optioned out in Hollywood. We help you sell your foreign rights. There are just like piles upon piles of things that we, we do outside of just fixing your book and then selling it. I am out here for you. You don't know what it's like to be me out here for you. It is an up at dawn, pride swallowing siege. And then we we help maintain that relationship. You know, like it's not my job for the publisher to like me, all right? It's, it's my job to make sure they, they like you. God, help me. Help me, Rod. Help me help you. Help me. If there's a big disagreement, if you hate your cover, if, if the marketing isn't up to snuff, then it's your agent's job to dive in there and, and kind of be the bad guy and, and try to smooth things over and, and get you what you deserve. Rod, Rod, Jerry Maguire, how you doing? Jerry Maguire! <laughs> yeah, how you doing? How am I doing? I'll tell you how I'm doing. I'm sweating, dude. I'm sweating my contract. I'm sweating Bob Sugar calling me, telling me I'm missing the big endorsements by being with you. That's how I'm doing, I'm sweating. Yeah, agents do a lot of that stuff. There are a lot of funny little things in those contracts, like the theme park thing. I always laugh when I get to the, um, there's in like audiobook clauses, there's usually something about like phonographic rights. And like my book is never gonna be a vinyl record, but that would be cool if it got very popular and they wanted to do that, you know? So you need to hold on to those things just in case. It sounds like being in cahoots with big time agents isn't all Tom Cruise and Jerry Maguire or Hillary Duff in TV Land's Younger. But come on, Matt. Agenting isn't all the slush pile. Maybe, maybe there's a little glimmer of hope, Bethann. So what's next? After the break, it's time to meet your new BFF, Matt. 
And who is that, Bethann? Your editor, Matt. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, okay. Don't rain on my parade just yet. Don't bring around a cloud to rain on my parade. Welcome back to the dream versus the reality of book publishing. Where were we, Matt? You were about to introduce us all to our, and I quote, best friend forever, end quote. Yes, it's time to meet your editor. Your editor is Robert Gottlieb, who made Catch-19 into Catch-22 and persuaded the public intellectuals of the world they needed all 1,400 pages of the power broker on their shelves. Your editor is Toni Morrison, the only person you know who is a better writer than you are. Your editor is Maxwell Perkins, who mentored Thomas Wolfe and F. Scott Fitzgerald. Your editor is Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, who needs no introduction. Your editor is your most loyal friend and your best critic. She points out that there are no flaws in your book and tells you not to worry about writing a second draft. First time's a charm. She offers moral support and cash loans. The loans you don't necessarily have to repay, but why wouldn't you when your editor ensures that your book will bring fame, fortune, and awards? In years to come, there will be museum exhibits and films about the unique meeting of minds between you and your editor. Many years later, on the Nobel stage in Stockholm, you thank your editor before you thank your spouse, your children, or even your agent. Sounds about right, huh, Matt? Bethann, with all due respect, not even close. Your editor makes $55,000 a year after her raise, and she just voted in favor of a strike authorization. Her emailed edits arrive at late hours or on weekends, or they arrive at late hours on weekends because the actual editorial part of her job mainly happens outside of the office. She has several more titles on her list than she'd prefer, including half a dozen that she inherited from a colleague who left publishing for the sunny and lucrative field of public relations, the lucky bastard. Your editor spends more time than she'd like to admit providing basic IT support. Think turning on the printer or attaching things to emails for her elderly boss who has not once invited her to come visit his house in the Hamptons. Your editor genuinely admires her book. I mean, why else would she only make minor tweaks and only in the first three chapters? But if it flops in the market, she'll just pass on your next manuscript and, regretfully, potentially end your career. No big deal. How's that for editor Bethann? Matt, are you okay? It sounds like you desperately need a vacation. You know there are no vacations in publishing. Aside from summer Fridays. So, did Eric Smith have anything optimistic to say? What are the ups and downs of the editor-author relationship? That's a really interesting question. Um, I, I guess... The ups are that they are there to help you tell the best version of your story, 
right? They're, they are a big fan. They are on board to make that story as, as great as it can be. They are your, like, I guess, first line of defense at the publishing house. They are your advocate, you know, as, as the editor. They're the ones who are talking to the salespeople, letting them know everything they know about the book, talking to the art people so they understand what the cover should look like, talking to publicity and marketing. Um, of course, the agent will sometimes be involved in those conversations, particularly with publicity and marketing. Um, but as the editor, they're the ones who know the most about the book other than the author, right? So they're the ones who are going to be pushing for you. Uh, over there, you know, your editor is your your champion at the publishing house. See, Matt, the editor is your best friend. The downsides, I guess, of the author-editor relationship? There they are, the downsides. Even superstar editor Eric Smith has something to say about them. While they are your advocate and they are the person that's fighting for you, that doesn't mean they're going to be able to get everything, right? They, they can't. You know, that doesn't mean you're going to have the same like AAA marketing campaign that every other book is getting. Yours might be a little bit less. Uh, and sometimes you feel like as the author, like maybe my editor is not fighting for me enough. Maybe they're not doing enough. And, and usually that's not the case. You know, usually it's it's a decision that's made elsewhere. But since your editor is the first one you talk to, they're the ones that are in that line of fire right away. So that relationship can get kind of tense when you're when you're dealing with that. And uh, that's when you talk to your agent to, to have them have those conversations and, and sort of keep those emotions in check there. Um, I guess other downsides could be that maybe you and your editor don't agree on the direction that you're they're taking the story. Um, I feel like, at least in my experience, that happens very, very seldom. I, I, I haven't really run into those kind of uh, issues there. Um, but if that's happening, Again, that's where your agent steps in to try to smooth things over and, and remind them that this is the book that they bought and, and this is where the story happens to be going. And I feel like that might be it. See, Bethann, I told you there is a dark side of the author-editor relationship. Okay, okay, Mr. Glass Half Empty. It was emptied long ago. One of the downsides uh, no one really warns you about is the possibility that your editor might leave. That is the thing that happens. Maybe they leave the industry because work is really hard, or maybe they move to another publishing house where they are gonna be paid a little bit more or, or appreciated a bit better. There's nothing you can do to, to prepare for that when it comes to publishing. Focus on the stuff that's in your control. That thing is not in your control. Your your agent can send angry emails, but they're not, they're not gonna, they're not going to stay at a publishing house because your agent is upset. Like that's, that's just not a thing that's going to happen. So yeah, you might get inherited and picked up by another editor there who you might not necessarily gel with. And that's, that's a whole thing you'll have to work through with your agent, with your, with your team. But usually when you get inherited by an editor, it's because they're a big fan of yours. Is there an editor shortage in the publishing industry? I don't know. I, I would hope not. I like, I feel like I see new editors uh, getting promoted and, and, and moving into publishing uh, every week. But that said, I feel like I see people leaving every week. You know, it's, it's a really hard business right now. People are expected to do a lot of work in addition to what their, their regular job is. So I don't know if there's a shortage. I, I, oh God, I hope not. And I hope publishers are starting to see they need to treat people better. If they want to retain all of this talent. I hate to say I told you so again, but Bethann, I told you so. Hold on a minute. Let's hear why these departures are tough, especially in editorial. You know, editing and, and working in publishing, 
at any level, whether you're an agent or an editor or a marketing person, publicity person, so much of it is almost like an apprenticeship, right? Like when you get hired, you you learn so much about the job from the people who've already done it. Uh, and when those people are leaving, uh, and when those people who are, are learning are leaving, who, who's going to be there to... to boost more people up and, and keep things going. So you never know when the next mass extinction is going to happen. I mean, there have been five of them in the last 450 million years alone. What do books look like after those kind of people leave who have had such an influence? And that's, that's a scary thing to think about. Oh boy, I feel like I went doom and gloom really fast there. It's okay, Eric. Doom and gloom is my speed and the proper and correct response. And frankly, the publishing industry is no stranger to it. All right, Matt, can it? Let's move into the production and the marketing of our dear author's book. This has got to be more uplifting than talking about editors going through a mass extinction event. Off to the presses. Part four, production and marketing. know that saying, don't judge a book by its cover? Well, don't mention that to your publisher's art department. A book's cover, art, and font, and illustrations, and, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's just say there's nothing quite as awesome as seeing your book in the flesh. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! In the name of God! Now I know what it feels like to be God! Here's the dream book production and marketing scenario. Chip Kid, the guy who made the Jurassic Park logo, and the guy who does all of Haruki Murakami's book designs, well, of course he designs your book jacket. Obviously, the first printing includes full color inserts across beautiful acid-free paper with hand-sewn binding. The book's spine will make unassuming shoppers stop to catch their breath at Barnes & Noble. Now, after much back and forth with your publisher, you too just made the difficult decision against Deckled Edges. Your memoir just isn't a Deckled Edges girl. And that stunning Chip Kid cover? Well, two months from publication, it's almost completely obscured by a surfeit of stickers. Your book is already a National Book Award winner, and it's naturally long-listed for the Booker Prize shortlist. We think that with this shortlist, we've given the book groups and you six books that are really worth getting your teeth into. Don't even get me started with all the mid-length lists. Oprah and Reese are gushing over your title to their millions of book club members. Good morning! I'm so excited to be here with you all to share my next book club selection. The advanced reader copy receives a larger print run than most final published books. Your events are so popular that the booksellers are forced to move them to larger venues. You're recognized on public transportation, but you won't have to take public transportation for very much longer. Not since Book Talk started obsessing over your page turner. All of these books, as you saw from the title, are books that you've most definitely seen on Book Talk. Your publisher is already talking about the second and third print runs. So sexy. Oh, and don't get me started on the promos. 
influencers are freaking out over the most amazing swag that $25 can buy. They're live streaming unboxing videos on Instagram at all hours of the day. And today I'm gonna be doing an epic unboxing book haul. Move over Colleen Hoover and Madeline Miller. Thanks to the magic of Photoshop and marketing, there's a hot new author in town. With all due respect, Bethann, did you drop acid or sniff printer's ink before today's podcast recording? Because at this point, your delusions of grandeur in book publishing could only be drug-induced. Excuse me, Matt. I'm just telling it like it is in this glamorous biz. Here's how book production and marketing really look. Your book's cover artwork, which you don't have any say in, features several stock photo composites muddled together. We're pretty sure that you've seen the looming gothic building and that brooding trench-coated guy on a few other book covers. But your agent and your editor alike swear that this vibe will move all the copies. It's not like people judge a book by its cover or anything. That said, you have to keep your author copies hidden. The paper is so cheap, it might burst into flames. And if that paper is exposed to direct sunlight, at the very least, it's going to turn an unpleasant, slightly moldy-smelling yellow. Your publicist has read the jacket copy, or rather, skimmed it. They might, if they're very good, even know what happens in the first 30 pages of your book. But don't worry, they fully intend to read the remainder sometime in the next two or three months, which may turn into two or three years. Substantial portions of the advanced copies the publicity team sends out will turn up unread at used bookstores across the nation. Aside from a respectful notice from Publishers Weekly and a hesitant recommendation from the hard asses at Kirkus, you receive no noteworthy print reviews. Well, you might wish that Publishers Weekly and Kirkus were more enthusiastic, but then again, you know that the anonymous reviewers there made less than $100 per review. On the other hand, readers of your 500-page doorstop tome come by to share their thoughts on your book tour, which is, naturally, confined to your home state. You greet many old friends, you say hi to your parents, and you meet almost no strangers. Matt, I say this with love, but I'm worried about you. I'm just worried about this hypothetical author's hypothetical book tour. Okay, but you're red in the face. Why don't you grab a glass of water while we hear from Eric Smith again? So why is good communication important in the publishing process? For so many reasons, right? So like you and your publisher, you're on the same team, right? You're your you're editor and agent, all on the same team. They want your book to succeed. They want your book to do well. Um, and that communication is important to, to make sure it does well, to make sure someone isn't accidentally dropping the ball, to make sure that if your marketing campaign isn't that great, there's room to improve it and room to work together on it. Um, there's another like like oft said thing on, on social media and, and articles where they talk about the fact that all the marketing and publicity and sales is on the author, right? That's not the case, you know? You're you're a team. Your, your publisher is gonna be doing stuff that you're not aware of. They're gonna be, again, promoting your book to school markets, promoting your book to library markets, promoting your book to the booksellers. 
Um, if you're not having those conversations and, and understanding where your book is in that process and, and getting to know what's going on behind those scenes, sure, you're gonna you're gonna feel like nothing's happening when a lot of stuff is happening. So so have those conversations. So the the journey to publication uh, is is joyful, right? So it sounds like there's a lot going on behind the scenes at this point in the book's production process. But I wonder what Eric has to say about the book's cover. Do authors get a choice? What actually happens? Do authors get a say in what their cover will look like? The answer is yes. I I feel like there's a lot of, um, I, I don't know why, I, I, I see it on, on Twitter and on social media all the time where it's like, oh, once your book sells, you let go of everything. You don't get to choose your cover. You don't get doing the cover. That's not true. You know, there's, there's always something in your contract that says like meaningful consultation or, or author approval or, or something in there. Like at the end of the day, yeah, your publisher will prevail. That is the, the contract language um, when it comes to your cover, if you're being very, very difficult. Um, but they want you to, they want you to love it. They, they want you to love your cover. So you're, you're talking about it on the internet and you're showing it off to friends and you're making posters of it in your, in your house. Um, you do get a say, and you do get a con. You do get to have a conversation. I, uh, yeah, I'm looking at my authors. I'm looking at my bookshelves again, and like all of my authors have been very happy with their book covers because we we have that meaningful conversation. And yeah, you'll you'll get to have a conversation. Don't don't feel like you let go of everything. You do let go of a lot. The book's not yours anymore. Uh, but you you get to work on the cover. You get to have a cover you're happy with. Matt, are you feeling? Just a little bit better after hearing from Eric? Maybe a little bit less pessimistic. I guess if you have a good PR and production team, things can and do go better than I thought they might. Be still, my beating heart. Is that optimism I'm sensing in your voice? This is a first. I wouldn't go so far as to say optimism. That's a stretch. But I'm now imagining at least a single stranger showing up at this imaginary book signing. And that's a step up. I'll take what I can get, old buddy, old pal. Ready for the most exciting part of the book's journey? What's that, Bethann? Hello, reaching the readers at bookstores and beyond. This is what it's all about. I'll tell you, Bethann, this might be the first time I'm agreeing with you. Well, if you can get excited about reaching readers, then I guess it's pretty riveting stuff. Here's what Eric has to say about what goes into the book display at your local bookstore. How do books end up on the right shelves in the bookstores? Um, I mean, I, I think that comes down to where the publisher believes it exists. Like, do they think this is uh, literary fiction? Is this a young adult fantasy? Is this, you know, whatever the category is. Uh, when you decide what the category is, that's that's usually where it ends up in the bookshop. Um, I feel like there's always a little bit of confusion when you have a, a genre blending book. Uh, I work on quite a few of them. Those are kind of my favorite sort of stories where like, like is Station Eleven a sci-fi novel or is it literary fiction? Like, where does it go? What's the most likely way a reader will become aware of a new title? Ooh, the most likely way a reader becomes aware of a new title. Oh. Goodness, I, I, I feel like the two big ones are um, going into your bookstore, whether it's like Big Barnes and Noble or an indie bookstore and, and just wandering around and, and seeing what's new. Um, and probably word of mouth, you know, I think word of mouth is that big one uh, where someone's read a book, they absolutely love it and they're just telling all their friends about it. Um, 
you know, I sign up for, you know, I'm on, I'm on a Goodreads mailing list. I, I get the new release thing from Amazon. I get the new releases from Bookshop. Um, one of my favorite ways to find out about new books is uh, Book of the Month Club. Uh, every month they, they give me five recommendations and I, I buy too many of them and it's a problem because I'm moving right now and there are a lot, oh, of, no. <laughs> a lot of books in my house. But I, I feel like readers who are the kind of readers who read like a book a week, a book every other week, you know, two books a month, whatever it happens to be. Uh, they're the ones who are signing up for all these things and getting to know all of that stuff. Um, the reader who maybe reads like one book a year, you know, like my mom, uh, you know, that's usually you know, walking in the bookstore or, or that very valuable word of mouth. My romantic version of the story, once the book is out in the world, this is what I like to imagine happens. Everyone reads your book. Everyone loves it. Your book tops the bestseller charts, and the local library has 200 holds on 20 circulating copies. Your author's story gets a happily ever after, or HEA for those in the know. What happens once your book is in the reader's capable hands? It depends. Think about your own reading experiences, the experiences that made you a writer to begin with. Think about the books on your shelves. Have you read all of them? Of course not. Despite the praise you lavished on it, you haven't read your friend's debut cover to cover. Chances are they haven't read your book all the way through either. You still receive a few emails from random readers. One email notes a typo on page 156. A second correspondent announces that the unnecessary insertion of your liberal politics into the book led them to toss their copy out the window. Hey, it's still a sale. But maybe, just maybe, that third email from someone who really appreciates your work and understands your intentions will come through. And that can make it all worthwhile. Thanks to Matt Keeley, our resident curmudgeon, and to Eric Smith, the book publishing biz's Swiss army knife, if you will. Before we go, here are a few book recommendations from our expert guest, Eric Smith. So two quick book recommendations. Uh, this month, uh, you can pick up The 99 Boyfriends of Micah Summers. Uh, it is a young adult rom-com about a boy who runs a very popular Instagram feed where he draws his dream boys, uh, and he is stressing over finding number 100 uh, and what happens when he does. Uh, and then next month, Nothing Sung and Nothing Spoken by award-winning author Nita Tyndall comes out. Uh, it is a World War II young adult historical novel about the Swinghide movement uh, during Nazi Germany, where teenagers protested by dancing to swing music. It's a true thing that happened. Uh, it, as someone who grew up watching Swing Kids as a, as a kid, I'm very excited to be working on a YA novel that explores uh, that space. Looking for more titles about the zany world of book publishing? Then look no further than this selection of must-reads. Saint X by Alexis Shaikin is a literary thriller about an unsolved murder that also features the most convincing account of life as a publishing assistant that our producer Matt knows. 
Misery by Stephen King is the great novel of the author in extremis. However far a writer's reality may diverge from their dreams, at least they don't have Annie Wilkes and her acts to deal with. Erasure by Percival Everett is a brutal satire on authenticity. A Black novelist writes a scathing parody of urban novels, then discovers that the white literary establishment treats it as an honest account of Black America. Missing Pages is a podglomerate original and is written and produced by a small army. Showrunner, Kayla Lippman. Producer, researcher, and writer, Jordan Aaron. Producer, Matt Keeley. Production, mixing, and mastering by Chris Boniello. Fact-checking by Douglas Weissman. Legal review by Alexia Bedat and Louise Caron at Claris Law. Marketing by Joni Deutsch, Morgan Swift, and Madison Richards. Social media by Sylvia Butel. Art by Tom Grillo. Production and hosting by me, Beth Ann Patrick. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and The Podglomerate. Special thanks to Dan Christo. We have included links to a lot of the background stories we used for this episode in the show notes. You can learn more about Missing Pages at thepodglomerate.com, on Twitter at Miss Pages Pod, and on Instagram at Missing Pages Pod, or you can email us at missingpages at thepodglomerate.com. If you liked what you heard today, please let your friends and family know and suggest an episode for them to listen to. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, and we'll be back next week with another episode. 